This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Carly Dover and we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, upon whose land we are broadcasting here at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On the Climate Action Show, we talk about what's hot and what's not with climate change. Please share the show if you like what you hear, and remember there can be no climate justice without First Nations justice. I recently attended an incredible panel discussion presented by the University of Queensland, working together to solve the mental health impacts of climate change. Our facilitator was Associate Professor Fiona Charlson, and the panel speakers were Colin Sivalingham, Selena Gomesol, Ben Norris, Dr Joe Longman, Dr Rebecca Patrick, and Associate Professor Karen McNamara. We'll hear from them after the first community service announcement. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. We see, we know from the evidence that there's increased psychiatric hospitalisations, higher mortality among people with mental illness, and heightened suicide rates as a result of these um, of climate change and uh, related extreme events. Um, however, compared with other health areas, social and emotional well-being, or mental health, or, or whatever um, definition of uh, psychological well-being we want to use and climate change have received little research attention. We're really behind the game, um, particularly in the context of rural and regional communities who are often the ones most directly impacted by climate change. Um, and just to highlight that the links between mental health and climate change are really complex. Um, there's our direct impacts, which um, we might know of, trauma related to bushfires and flooding, et cetera. But really this issue cuts across all um, sectors, across a whole system of which the um, causal pathways and associations are, are operating. And that's really important to note um, 
not necessarily the details of this figure that I'm, I'm showing today, which was um, published by Helen Berry some years ago, but really just to appreciate that it is across a number of um, areas of society that these impacts of, or links rather, between mental health and climate change are, are operating. And that's very important for today's conversation in terms of why would we need a transdisciplinary approach to solving some of the issues that we're seeing. So they're also multi-level. So I mentioned just then about the um, direct impacts, which are what we call primary level um, con um, impacts. And these come from the events themselves. So extended heat, rainfall, fires, floods, storms. Um, those ones are probably the most obvious that we, we um, when we think about mental health and climate change. Then we've also got our secondary or indirect impacts, which are um, to do with uh, drought, which is a more chronic um, event, sea level rise, land degradation, air pollution, physical health has strong links with mental health and is also impacted by climate change significantly. And also water and food security, which is impacted by climate change and has then impacts on, on mental health. And then we really get into these broad society level impacts where we're looking at displacement and migration, uh, loss of connection to land, uh, health system pressures and reduced access to mental health care, have um, reduced economic productivity, agricultural losses, reduced financial security, strain on community cohesion and social capital, um, loss of nature spaces, spaces, which we know are um, really important for maintaining our well-being and that connection to nature, and also conflict and political instability. These are all things that are operating on a societal level and are impacted by climate change and have direct links to um, population mental health. So um, with that very um, brief introduction to the mental health impacts of, of climate change, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the network while we're here today. Um, so the UQ or University of Queensland Mental Health and Climate Change Transdisciplinary Research Network, which I know is a bit of a mouthful, so we've kind of put a bit of an abbreviation there, is the first transdisciplinary research network in Australia with an applied research approach to addressing the interconnecting social, mental and emotional health uh, impacts of climate change. Um, our network specialises in mental health for communities impacted by climate change events, and it focuses on research, evidence and solutions, importantly. So we set up this network in 2019. It was really in response to the growing need of uh, government and industry for an evidence base that supports the work that they're doing, whether that's um, a service delivery, so interventions, tools such as assessment tools or policy, um, which are required to protect the social emotional wellbeing of our populations. Um, we really wanted to, we, we acknowledge the need to coordinate and expand research activities with university and industry uh, or government community partners. Uh, we really wanted to harness the transdisciplinary expertise across UQ and more broadly, which I'll talk about in a minute, for greater innovation and impact. And it was really about bringing together a critical mass of research within this growing area of concern. Our vision um, 
or the network's vision is uh, to secure the social emotional well-being of rural and regional as a focus but more broadly across all populations and communities in Australia in an age of rapid environmental change. In pursuing this vision, we really anticipate that um, UQ's Mental Health and Climate Change Network will become a national hub of expertise for the social emotional wellbeing aspects of natural disasters or extreme events related to, to climate change. So who are we? These are our UQ researchers and very importantly, um, PhD students who are currently uh, uh, conducting and engaged in research um, within uh, you, uh, across UQ. And you can see there we've got a really, we do have a very broad representation of skills and disciplines. So we have um, School of Public Health, which I'm from, we have researchers from um, two of our social science uh, departments. Uh, we have researchers from School of Earth and Environmental um, Sciences. We have people from Communication and Arts, the School of Business, um, Biology. So really um, economics, importantly economics. Um, so we've got a really broad um, representation and a really nice complementary skill set of researchers who can tackle the issues that we're seeing and the research questions that are being asked um, around uh, mental health and climate change. So there are um, UQ researchers, but what we are um, doing more and more, and it is one of the reasons that we are holding this webinar today, is to extend our collaborations across other institutions, both nationally and internationally. And we have two researchers on the panel today who I will introduce in a moment, who are from other academic institutions, and um, we are already engaged in, in collaborative work. Um, so as we increase our membership and extend our membership out, um, beyond UQ, acting as, um, and UQ would maintain a host role for the network, um, we're really committed to following activities that add value to our, to our members. And we really want to connect and coordinate partnerships between field experts and academic experts to support this really important applied research approach to mental health and climate change. We want to position our members, both academic and non-academic, for strategic funding and investment opportunities, which we all know is an ongoing challenge, but um, uh, an important one so that we can, can continue to do our, our research and, and work. Uh, we want to support the development of proposals, which ties um, back into into the funding. We want to share knowledge about mental health and climate change, so acting as a knowledge broker. We want to promote higher degree research opportunities within the network and, and beyond, and our um, PhD candidates and our ECRs are really important um, uh, capacity building component of, of the network. We need to develop more capacity in this, in this space. Uh, we want to shape and influence the national research agenda for mental health and climate change, um, which has not been well um, developed yet. So we're in a quite a unique position in uh, time and place to do that. We want to advocate for the importance of research um, 
And importantly, the most important, none of this makes any difference unless the research is uh, translated into informing policy, service planning, et cetera, unless it's actually used by people. The mental health system in Victoria is currently undergoing transformational reform. And for the first time, these reforms centre people with lived experience of mental health challenges in the design and delivery of the new system. So how do we then ensure that lived experience engagement is genuine and not tokenistic? And what are some of the structural changes that need to occur to encourage people with a lived experience to want to participate? These are some of the questions we will be exploring in this year's Wellways Public Lecture on Thursday, May 26 at the Wheeler Centre. The keynote speaker is Debbie Hamilton, a systemic mental health advocate. And the evening will also include a panel discussion with lived experience and governance experts and the launch of Vimeac's Consumers Leading in Governance pilot program. This is a free event, but bookings are essential. To book your ticket to the in-person event or online stream, visit lecture.wellways.org and follow the links to the booking page. That's lecture.wellways.org. Wellways supports 3CR. If you're just tuning in, we're listening to a panel discussion from the University of Queensland working together to solve the mental health impacts of climate change. We're hearing from the facilitator, Associate Professor Fiona Charlson, and expert panel speakers, Colin Sibillingham, Selena Gomesol, Ben Norris, Dr. Joe Longman, Dr. Rebecca Patrick, and Associate Professor Karen McNamara. So how do we develop our research projects? We work very closely with external partners. We've been very, very busy in the last year or two um, developing relationships, having workshops, discussions with external partners to understand why, what it is that they need in terms of um, research that could support the work that they are, are doing. And broadly, there's sort of three um, categories of external partners, if you like. We've got the public sector, um, which are our government agencies, federal, state level, um, local level. Uh, we have our public purpose um, corporations, um, councils, uh, local councils are an important uh, partner in this work, are very active in this uh, work and have a lot of interest in this work, um, and also other state-owned enterprises. If we look at the private sector, we have got industry and other private corporations, philanthropic organisations, trade unions, are some external partners. And then as individuals who are um, might be academic researchers from other institutions, politicians we have engaged with in the past, high profile personalities with an active interest in the subject matter or, and of course, um, students. Okay, so let's get to it. Let's introduce our panellists. Uh, we have today a very, very um, a, a star-studded lineup of, of panellists, and I'm really grateful for their time. Um, we have got Selena Gummersall, who is the Chief Advocacy Officer from Outback Futures. We have got uh, Ben Norris, as the outgoing manager of the mental health drought and disaster team in Queensland Health. Uh, we have got Rebecca Patrick, who is the director of Deakin's Sustainable Health Network and is a climate and mental health researcher who the, our UQ network actively collaborates with. We also have uh, Colin 
Sivalingam, who is, I'm going to get this title right, sorry, <laughs> Colin, is the State Emergency Manager for the Australian Red Cross. Uh, who have I got? Joe, Joe Longman, who is from the Centre for Rural Health at the University of Sydney, and uh, that is in, in Lismore. So thank you to all of our panellists. I'm going to start with you, Colin. Um, the Australian Red Cross has a, a huge amount of experience working to support communities impacted by extreme weather events amongst other um, adversity. And these weather events are really increasing in intensity and magnitude, we know, as our climate changes. So what do you see as uh, the most significant challenges faced by the communities that you work in? And how do you think research could support the development of solutions to these challenges? Good morning, Fiona. Thank you. And I think it's uh, thank you for the opportunity to be online today. And it's really um, the research is the most important part of the work. So one of the most significant challenges that we're experiencing at the moment is currently we're responding to the Southeast Queensland events or the flood event is that cumulative impact of disasters. So multiple events that's taking place. We have communities that have been in drought. We had COVID, then we had floods, then we threw a heat wave in between and you got fires and then floods again. So that cumulative impact of disasters or natural disasters when we're supporting communities is one of the most stressful things to communities at the moment. And we're seeing the impact on the mental health, the impact on the well-being. So certainly we're seeing that. Another big significant impact is population movement and that changes in the demographic and of population, the displacement. Um, and what we're seeing is, is um, the vulnerability indexes in terms of data is actually getting thrown out the window as population move. Now in Queensland, we had the highest population growth as a result of Queensland, of people coming here as a result of COVID. Now, two thirds of natural disasters take place in Queensland every year. So we have an increase of population to the most disaster prone state that are living in more vulnerable communities, vulnerability in terms of the community housing issues, where they can actually affordability of uh, rentals. So this is a challenge. One of the other challenges we're having is also funding cycles. So funding cycles in terms of recovery, investment is always as fixed term um, uh, service delivery models. Now that doesn't work for community. The impact on community, the impact on climate change and the impact on mental health is not in confined to funding cycles. So there's a challenge in itself. Now, the opportunity in terms of research, and I spot on what you said in your introduction, is the evidence-based approach to inform our work, to influence practice is utmost essential. And the more we do this, the better it is in terms of our practice. Now, we're seeing the, the, the impact of mental health is a huge opportunity in a changing physical environment as a result of climate change but also in the changing in the social environment, the fabric, the social fabric of community is actually changing. So it's where research meets practice. And I think there's a huge research opportunity in that specific area. Now it's really, really hard to build resilience in a single event. Then we have multiple events taking place. And I think the, the psychosocial impact in a multi 
multi-event community, there's a huge research opportunity there again to look at how can we inform our practice. Now, we're certainly seeing that impact on mental health and, uh, as a result of climate change. And there's a couple of la last points I would like to make is around fatigue and fatigue management. Not just community fatigue, but uh, fatigue in, and tiredness and worry in first responders and people working in the space. Now, we know there's research. We know there's existing research. More research is uh, needs to be done in terms of how we're using the research to address the issues of fatigue management in community and in terms of first health nations. Um, the, I think in first nations communities, uh, sites of cultural significance is a big issue, especially when there's a loss of uh, important cultural significant sites. Now that has a huge impact on, the, on, on mental health of first nations communities. So I think more and more research is required in that area. So this is a couple of things that I would like to speak out about, um, but uh, my time is up, I'm sure. And I would like to finish off like uh, a monitoring and evaluation frameworks are fantastic. It should inform our work, but within that, having the frameworks in place and having good monitoring and evaluation frameworks is one thing, but research is needed about how do we put it in practice. I think that's a big gap, and I'll pause there. Thank you, Fiona, for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you, Colin. That was um, fantastic. So, yeah, a really broad scope of, of, of challenges there, which are um, the new challenges, as you point out, in, in some way. We don't quite know um, what this new space or, or new experience of um, multiple events is, is really going to mean for, for our for our communities other than we know that it's increased adversity. So lots of questions there. Thanks, Colin. Ben, I might throw to you. Um, you've led the Tackling Regional Adversity Through Connected Care or TRAC program within Queensland Health for several years now. Um, and we're very grateful for all the work that that program is, is doing. Can you tell us a little bit just briefly about what that program does for people who might be online and, and are unsure? and really talk about how solutions-focused research could assist the program in delivering its services. Sure. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for the invitation um, this morning as well. Looking forward to meeting the rest of the network in time. The, um, the track program has gone through a few name changes as it's evolved to keep up with, um, with the research and you know the the learned kind of experience on the ground. So initially, it it stood for tackling regional adversity through integrated care, the TRAIC program, um, and it it essentially is still about that. But we found that the name uh, was a hard sell for people, you know, in the lay sort of community. So. The, the current name is Tackling Regional Adversity Through Connected Communities, T-R-A-C-C. Um, because we found that when communities are connected, uh, a lot of good things happen as well, you know, including integrated care, including improved resilience, et cetera. So the, the, the track program is based around four key ideas. Um, the first is about connecting people to the right level of care at the right time and place. So it's basically integrated care, but in a more uh, easier to explain, you know, um, sentence, if you like. 
The, the second is about help working with the community to help them to better understand their own mental health. Um, or what we used to refer to as improving mental health literacy. And the aim of that is really about helping, improving help seeking sort of behavior, because that's really important. The third um, key action area is about working with people who form the informal frontline um, following a climate risk event. And that, that frontline potentially could change from one event to the next. But it's typically not your um, Queensland Health type, you know, <laughs> services. It's it's people who are working, you know, it could be your GPs, it could be your, your local hairdressers, it, you know, sporting clubs, churches, that sort of thing. They're, um, so it's working with that sort of cohort of people to help them to identify people who might be dealing with a mental health issue, um, know how to respond appropriately, and importantly, know where to refer to. So, you know, we can't refer to that in a way as improving referral pathways to the right level of care, etc. And then the, the fourth one is about, um, um, you know, what we used to talk about improving resilience. What we have found over the years is that the term resilience is a bit of a loaded term. So communities don't like you doing resilience training, you know, with them. It's a, it's a bit of an insult. So we unpack that a little bit by, by talking about working with communities to uh, better deal with their current issues around mental health and then um, being better prepared to deal with future events. Um, it is resilience, but in a more kind of explained sort of way. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. If you're just tuning in, we're listening to a panel discussion from the University of Queensland working together to solve the mental health impacts of climate change. We're hearing from the facilitator, Associate Professor Fiona Charlson, and expert panel speakers, Colin Sibillingham, Selena Gomesol, Ben Norris, Dr. Joe Longman, Dr. Rebecca Patrick, and Associate Professor Karen McNamara. It's a multi-level, multi-kind of systemic approach to addressing mental health issues um, from climate risk events. The track program started way back in 2015, and it was in response to the then Minister Cameron Dick wanting us to do something about the, the mental health issues of farmers dealing with long-term drought. Um, but we thought that we could do more than just dealing with drought uh, because regional Queensland, as Colin has alluded to, deals with adversity on a constant sort of basis. Um, so we took, we took a broader kind of adversity approach based uh, 
to a large degree on, on a similar model in New South Wales, the, R, the Regional University Mental Health Program. Our particular program is a little bit different in that it's got a, it's got a kind of a more significant clinical edge to it. Um, so we do employ clinicians who, senior mental health clinicians who um, can, if required, deliver you know mental health treatment in locations where um, you know there are no other clinicians are able to access. So in terms of um, the kinds of things that solutions-focused research could help us with is, is really around those sort of key things that, that I talked about. It's about what, what are ways of improving that connection to the right level of care, you know, the right uh, time and place. It's about how do we improve help-seeking behaviour? Uh, you know, how do we communicate things in a way that removes the stigma associated with seeking mental health? Stigma reduction is an ongoing challenge for us in the mental health sector. Um, and, you know, working with the, with the, uh, the front line, like I said, and improving referral pathways, what we found with the TRAC program is that the more rural and regional you get, the more innovative you need to be with your referral practices. So there's a lot of scope for interesting research in that in rural and regional Queensland in that space. And then, you know, and then finally, the, the, the point I made about um, resilience training or, you know, helping people to become more adaptable, having a more kind of growth focused mindset. Um, you know, contrary to popular belief, unfortunately, the, the more adversity you face, the less resilient you become. You know, so there's a there's a if you do a lot of work around helping people to to meet and adapt to those challenges, then you're giving them a chance to become um, you know more more resilient. But we are dealing with um, both an existential and real sort of crisis with regards to climate change. You know, people are now seeing the actual impacts of ongoing climate change year after year like Colin said, sometimes multiple times in the same year. But they also know that there's more to come. So that creates a, a whole level of anxiety and, and stress whilst dealing with the actual stress of, you know, dealing with your current kind of impacts. So, again, a lot of, um, a lot of scope in that space. Yeah. I'll leave it at that, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> um, thanks, Ben. That, that's fantastic overview of the program. And, and also you... You're um, really connecting with Colin's comments there about um, these multiple extreme events, and you know historically in Australia we've we've always um, we're a country of natural disasters, uh, um, and, and communities do recover. But what we're seeing now, as you both alluded to, are these multiple events on top of each other, and our communities just not having time to to rebuild. Um, so we really are in, as you say, in a new in a new era, and need um, need to find some new solutions. So thanks for that really great overview, Ben. Um, Selena, I'm I'm going to pass to you now because your work with Outback Futures is in some very remote parts of Australia, and that must really provide you with quite a unique perspective on how these remote um, communities are being impacted by by climate change. What do you see as the biggest issue in these um, remote parts of Australia? 
Thanks, Fiona. Again, um, like Ben and Colin, it's great to be a part of this conversation. Um, yeah, look, there's so much that I could cover in that answer, but I guess there's a few quick points that I'd like to make um, just to add a slightly different perspective. Um, I certainly, you know, am in complete agreement with everything that Ben and Colin have said and, and relate to it very strongly. But I think so often as we talk about how we can shift thinking and behaving behaviour related to climate change moving forward, we're doing so in groups that are primarily made up of people between the ages of 40 and 60, um, with the exception of some, but that's the majority. And I think, which means that these same forums and conversations will very much, very likely need to be replicated in 20 years time with the next generation. So I think there's a real sense for us that we need to be ensuring that young people are a part of these conversations that we're having so that as we're making discoveries, as we're um, researching, as we're looking at tools and resources, they're a part of that and can carry that on. I think also we need to be thinking about some of the unseen impacts of climate events and change on our future generations. You know, both Colin and Ben have talked about, you know, the back-to-back disasters that our communities are experiencing, you know, decades of drought deeply impacting a family and a community on its own, let alone back to back with COVID monsoons, flooding bushfires. I think we can underestimate the amount of trauma that can result in individuals, in parenting teams, and in fact, a whole community experiencing trauma. And when you look at the back to back, we've got complex trauma. And I think we often forget the impact that that can have on a child's brain development, on their emotional development, on their learning capacity. So we're not just talking about the visible things. We're talking about the literacy of the next generation that are going to be implementing our you know, climate change research information and responding to it. We're talking about their, their neural pathways so I think there's a real urgency to the work we're doing. And I think we need to be focusing on informing our communities about the deeper impacts of climate on their well-being and mental health and equipping them with the tools to at least respond, but to ideally be prepared and forearmed in this space. And so I guess lastly, one of the tools that's been developed by Outback Futures in response to experience in this area is the wellbeing windmill. So it's a co-designed rural wellbeing framework for individuals. There are lots of wellbeing frameworks around, um, but a, a lot of them are very extensive and very um, detailed. This one's really aimed to be extremely, have extreme high utility and to be very relevant and relatable. So we've co-designed it with rural communities. And it's for individuals, groups, and whole communities, helping them to one, understand the impact of their context on their health and well-being, to have a way to measure that in an ongoing way themselves without requiring organisations to come in and lead them in that. And three, offering them a paradigm for working together to strengthen well-being against such challenges as climate change. So, you know, where research fits in, we're currently working, you know, as a that's come out of our relationship with the mental health climate change transdisciplinary network. Um, that is a mouthful to say. Um, we're actually currently working on a research collaboration with Thriving Kids Queensland and UQ's ISSR to further refine and evaluate this tool to ensure that it has both clinical validity as well as broader community utility so that there's actually um, 
a tool that everyone from the youngest children in the kindergartens and the primary schools, as well as those in the aged care, as well as those on properties and in neighbourhood centres, councils, IGAs, can all be using the same tool and the same five factors paradigm to be understanding the impact of, of mental health on their functioning, their decision-making, their children's development, everything in their community, and how to build how to build strategies and tools around that community-wide, all age and all sector. Um, so yeah, I could keep talking forever, but that that's probably a... Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. If you're just tuning in, we're listening to a panel discussion from the University of Queensland working together to solve the mental health impacts of climate change. We're hearing from the facilitator, Associate Professor Fiona Charlson, and expert panel speakers, Colin Sibillingham, Selena Gomesol, Ben Norris, Dr. Joe Longman, Dr. Rebecca Patrick, and Associate Professor Karen McNamara. It's great to be looking at these, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, these populations or, or parts of communities which might be differentially impacted and Colin also talked about that when he was talking about our First Nations people. So thank you Selena and we are delighted to be partnering with you in, in some research and very excited to see what lies ahead. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of partnering with research, um, I am now going to introduce you to Dr Joe Longman. Um, Joe, you live and work in Lismore, so you know on a very deep personal level how our changing climate is impacting communities and our hearts go out to you and your, your community members. Um, but you've also been involved in research around the mental health impacts of floods. Can you tell us a bit about this research and how you've been able to engage with communities to find solutions that are of real benefit to them? Thanks so much, Fiona, and um, good morning, everybody. It's fantastic to be here. And um, what amazing other speakers on the panel. Sounds like some fantastic work that's going on. So thank you for, to uh, previous panel members. So yeah, like Fiona says, um, I'm actually part of the University of Sydney, but I'm based at a rural research centre um, in Lismore. Um, Lismore, the most flooded town in Australia, of course, and um, dealing immediately right now with the after effects of two massive floods, um, one at the end of February and one at the end of March. So we're right in the middle of this. Um, but Fiona's asked me to talk about some research that we did, um, which was based on um, the community and how, how the community was managing in terms of mental health and well-being um, six months after the 2017 floods. So the floods that came to us on the back of Cyclone Debbie. And of course, the research team um, at the University Centre for Rural Health in Lismore, you know, we're, we're already embedded in that community. We, we live and work there and we have all of those kind of networks and, and we are part of that community. And I think that's quite an interesting and 
um, some somewhat unique um, experience to be to be so embedded in terms of um, uh, you know researching in a particular community. Um, and the work that we did following the 2017 floods was based very much on a, a strong community academic partnership. So we, we began that research study right from the get-go with this um, community academic partnership. So including things like, should we even be doing this research? What should the key research questions be? What should the design be? And the community was intimately involved in all of those decisions and all of that thinking. Um, and those kinds of community academic partnerships have been, you know, really central in other research studies too, to um, making sure that the gap between evidence and practice is, is plugged to a certain extent. Um, and in our case, it was almost more fundamental in that we really could not have done the study without the community's involvement. And we had about 60 different key community organisations involved in one way or another. And we actually employed a couple of people from the community who were incredibly well networked um, for a couple of roles in the research team. So um, there were a number of ways in which we, uh, we, we went about managing that community academic partnership. Um, and I think the benefits of that were really clear to us early on, certainly the relevance of the research questions, being able to pilot what we were thinking about doing. They, they were integral to recruiting participants, particularly getting to hard to reach groups and supporting and helping people to take part. Uh, we did a cross-sectional survey across the community and about two and a half thousand people took part in that. Um, and it's really, it's a brains trust, isn't it? It's bringing people together and, and using people's um, knowledge and, and their networks and their understanding to help design and drive things forward. Um, and it meant that the study was of very direct relevance and of, of use to the community um, along the way, as well as um, towards the end. So in terms of dissemination and translation, it was, a, um, it was really evident there that people's connection to the study and their, um, their sense of ownership um, and investment in the study made a big difference to the way they went. We, we, we were able to translate the findings for that. And, you know, it was the first time really I've had the experience of people in the community reaching back into the research team and asking for specific analyses to be done from the, from the data that we had. And, and that, those data have been used extensively to advocate for change um, and to... Um, apply for funding, to um, inform service planning, those kinds of things. So um, I, think, I think our experience of doing that and, and it has shown us also that it's been quite long lasting. So um, the investment together as a community in that research um, has stood us in really good stead, actually, for this current set of catastrophic floods in the northern rivers in that we've we've already got this kind of network and we've managed to keep that going and that's um that's been super useful actually right now in this early stage of trying to um support the community on the back of these floods yeah fabulous joe what an amazing example of um community engagement your you and your research team ha have done um just really amazing research and just such a, a great an important um, gold standard, really, for how um, research, research should, uh, community-based research should be done. So thank you so much for sharing that, um, Joe. 
Last but definitely not least is Dr. Rebecca Patrick. Rebecca is also uh, a very enthusiastic collaborator from Deakin University. Um, and we've got several activities underway, collaborative activities uh, with uh, Deakin. We've got a number of publications, a book chapter. Um, we have um, uh, dipped our toe in with some pilot work around system dynamics modelling and then also have a, an NHMRC um, ideas grant in to continue to do that work, which will be the focus of another webinar, so we won't go into that in detail. We're also doing some policy research with uh, Rebecca at um, uh, with her Kaha hat on, which is the Climate and Health Alliance. So, Rebecca, thanks for joining us today and thanks for just being such a great ongoing collaborator. What do you see as the value and importance of collaborating with other academic institutions around mental health and climate change? Thanks, Fiona, and thanks to the network for the invitation. Um, before answering that, I just would like to acknowledge I'm on Wadarung land today and uh, pay my respects. Uh, and also an appreciation to our colleagues that are working in frontline organisations on the panel and also in the audience today. And of course, Joe and the communities uh, in Lismore. So I suppose, Fiona, UQ and DU are really, I call it DU, Deakin University for, for short, really are natural collaborators, academic collaborators. This is probably because we have shared values in co-design, participatory and systems approaches to climate change uh, and mental health research. And Fiona, you mentioned our top three points of intersection. Um, let me just unpack those so people really understand how we work together. Firstly, on climate change, mental health and systems, dynamic re systems dynamics research. We across UQ and Deakin share capabilities and interests in using group model building, uh, this systems dynamics or system science approach. And also we've developed independently, but related um, technology or software <clears throat> to help us map drivers of climate change among priority populations and communities. And also importantly, identify priority actions and leverage points for intervention in the community. I suppose together, um, we're a really great combination of environmental and psychiatric epidemiologists. Um, I didn't even know there was a psychiatric epidemiologist, but that's what Fiona is, and it's been incredible to work with you, Fiona. Uh, we've also got health promoters and public health um, people on our team, psychologists, and as I said, um, system scientists. And we're really hope, hoping that um, our research uh, will be extended through the support of grants at a federal level. Secondly, we've got a really nice publishing routine um, emerging. We've got a special issue around climate change and mental health, and that also connects in with Joe. Uh, thanks, Joe, for leading us in that space. And we are chipping away at a book chapter for uh, a global health book. Uh, and this is where we're looking at, and Fiona, you're laughing, we need to sit down and write that, <laughs> um, is we're looking at how climate change and, uh, and mental health is actually a cross-cutting issue around uh, primary, secondary and tertiary impacts of climate change. And then the third area that um, we get connect, we connect over 
is that that intersection of the Climate and Health Alliance's work. Um, I'm the outgoing president, but I'm incoming again. I'm sitting in the, the president and chair role again for the next few months. And Fiona and UQ and Deacon colleagues, we've been contributing to some policy analysis development piece and a newly established climate change mental health practitioners network. And um, UQ and Deacon have, and other researchers have been uh, doing the science, which underpin policies such as this one, I'm holding it up for you, uh, the Healthy, Regenerative and Just, which is a framework for national strategy on climate change, health and wellbeing for Australia. Uh, and this is evidence-based. So the science that researchers in partnership with community generate inform the policy that we um, seek to see at federal level. And the good news is uh, Labor has endorsed this framework and has committed to implementing this very policy platform when in power. And hey, they're in power. So that's fabulous news. Um, just a couple more points, Fiona. Um, we're also collaborating with UTAS and Southern Cross University around outdoor healthcare and nature-based interventions. And I think that's another really important aspect of the climate change mental health equation about nature as a setting for health promotion and that sort of prevention arc uh, of, of our research. And I'm really looking forward, Fiona and the network, to lining up some of those partnerships and extending our reach. But directly responding to your question about the value of this network uh, and the relationship between our organisations is definitely the coordinated approach to research in this area and the related knowledge translation activities in policy and practice. Of course, the mutually beneficial research activities, importantly working across the gaps in research as with what was outlined, Fiona, in your seminal paper that uh, identified the 10 priorities uh, for, for research in this area. And of course, sharing uh, talent and resources across, um, um, which is largely uh, uh, an underfunded research area, but hey, um, uh, I'm hoping for better times ahead. So uh, a really valued relationship between uh, Deacon and UQ. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. And thanks for your, um, you know, you, you're, you're such an ally of, of our network and we need as many people and um, partners as we can get in this in this space. Um, to, there's just so much work to be done and also just, as you say, strength in complementary skill sets, et cetera. I might just come back to you, Ben, because you sat uh, in as part of the development of the National Disaster Mental Health and Wellbeing Framework with the um, National Mental Health Commission, um, which took place after the Black Summer bushfires. And there were some discussions, I believe, during that um, the, those consultations around how research could support the implementation of this framework. Do you want to have a little bit to say about that? Sure, thanks, Fiona. Um, so one of the things that came out both in the report and in the discussions of the um, National Men's Health and Wellbeing Framework was the need for us to be able to, to develop a national minimum data set um, that, that could gauge effectively 
the impacts of of the the climate risk event or the or the disaster on communities. So, so I'm I'm not only talking about mental health per se, but mental health would be part of of that national minimum, you know, data set. Um, so things from from a mental health point of view, I think a minimum data set should at least be able to gauge the um, the direct impact of that event on on people's mental health and well-being. Um, and you could look at if you wanted to take it further into a research sort of space, you could break it down into broadly two categories. Um, you could look at things which could have a uh, impact on helping people to to recover better, but also things uh, factors that would impinge or you know. Um, not not help people's you know recovery as well. So by that I'm 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 thinking about things like what what sort of factors could enable things like post traumatic growth, for example. Um, you know what? How how well places this particular community uh, to adapt to you know current and future changes? You know following following on from this event, um, we. What, I, what we need is a simple to administer, but not a simple, if you like, screening tool. So obviously uh, a tool that's got a lot of, you know, good research, you know, behind it, but could be easy to administer, say, in those kind of, you know, recovery centres that people like Colin run, you know. And Colin, you and I, in the past, we've, we've tried to, um, in those, you know, recovery hubs, evacuation sort of centers try to at least get some sort of basic data from people that have been forced to you know attend those events just to get a sense of, of what the the future impact you know down down the line is going to be the reason for that is we we do get drfa funding category c drfa funding at the moment for two years although i've argued um, to extend it to five years um, in line with the recommendations from the Royal Commission. But we need to, to base our, our bid for mental health recovery services on, on some reasonable data. And at the moment, that, that doesn't quite exist. Um, the, the sort of data that we do collect, you know, we do, like I said, a simple screening tool we look at a num number of people that have received, you know, psychological first aid uh, or referral to another agency. Uh, obviously, impacts of, of, you know, infrastructure, loss of habitat, all of those sorts of things are all captured. But it would be good to have a coherent, organised kind of framework based on evidence, based on research to underpin uh, a data set that we collect which could then be used, if you like, as a way of forecasting and predicting some sort of, um, and helping to actually form some kind of, you know, recovery planning. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And so, so there's really that, that issue, important issue that um, ha has come up in a number of um, discussions I, I've had around uh, uh, 
what do we measure and how do we measure? What's important in terms of collecting data and, and how do we go about that? And should it be standardised perhaps? You know, there might be some benefit in, across organisations and um, different populations of having a, a standardised, but maybe slightly adaptable um, for the context measures so that we can have some comparable data yeah. as well, because really without without data, we, we don't know um, which way ways up. Colin, I don't know if you have an experience with that that you want to add to, to Ben's comment. Yeah, thanks, Fiona. And a spot on and working with Ben for many years, we synergize very nicely with each other what the research or the practice is. And I think I would bring back to uh, climate change and the impact and uh, linking it to mental health. And a few years ago, the International Federation of Red Cross issued a report called the Cost of Doing Nothing report. So the, the difference with this report to all the other climate change reports is that it made it a humanitarian issue. So climate change is a humanitarian issue. And what does that mean is that uh, for human beings and the well-being and the psychosocial support and the impact of mental health on climate change is a huge issue. We're seeing that in our recovery centers. We're seeing that in our evacuation centers the moment people come into our care. And we're seeing that for years after that that's taking place in community. So outright correlation, making reference to that, that uh, bringing people to the center of our research is utmost important. And we're seeing this trend now, and it's more and more if keeping people at the center of all the research. So why do we rebuild the bridges? Why do we relocating homes? Uh, why do we uh, widen the roads? And all the physical rapid damage assessment data, but keeping people right at the center will have a better advocacy and influence outcome in terms of the research. So that would be my advice and actually synergizes the work that what um, Ben has been doing for many years. And I'll make reference to uh, some of the stuff Selena spoke about as well, is that uh, in, especially in outback communities, the mental health impact on young people, that, that uh, cumulative impact, we're seeing this first end in, in recovery centers, in evacuation centers, where very, very clearly the impact on young minds. And I think there's a huge opportunity for research in this area and how do we influence practice and change? Climate change can be a contentious topic in rural and remote slash agricultural communities. Can anyone speak to the experiences where this has been well received and what strategies have been used? That, you want me to take that, uh, Fiona? Oh, Colin, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so, and I'll make reference to last year, we issued a report, a drought report, um, and uh, it has direct impacts on climate change in communities. And uh, Selena was part of that conversations as well. Now, what we're actually seeing is in, in communities outback, especially in drought impacted communities, is that um, the community conversations need to take place. So one of, whether it's a drought uh, impacted community or natural disasters, communities are normally fractured because policy doesn't see drought as a natural disaster. Fantastic. I hope you all enjoyed that and learned a little bit. That was once again the University of Queensland panel discussion, Mental Health in Climate Change Transdisciplinary Research Network. We heard from facilitator Associate Professor Fiona Charlson and the panel speakers Colin Sivillingham. Selena Gomesall, 
Ben Norris, Dr. Joe Longman, Dr. Rebecca Patrick, and Associate Professor Karen McNamara. Have a lovely evening and we'll catch you next week. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.